Ben, why don't you take a seat? And happy Thanksgiving to you all. I was proud on social media to see some of you rebel against the status quo and post pictures of your ribeyes instead of your turkey. You know, there's a reason why we only eat that dry bird once a year. It's not good. So at some point, we're going to rebel against that as a community. Until that time, until that time, thanks, guys, for posting those pictures. Made me proud. Hey, Thanksgiving has a funny way of, of bringing out gratefulness in all of us, doesn't it? We sit around the table, and, and we hopefully tell one another about how grateful we are for the things that we've done in one another's lives. Now, if, you, if you've been at this game for any amount of time, you know that whenever you ask what you're grateful for in that moment, you're not supposed to talk about yourself. You're supposed to talk about somebody else. And if you're thinking in your head, oh, my family, nobody does that, you, you might be the guy, all right? You might be that person. And whenever you talk about other people and you talk about how grateful you are for them, uh, it should resonate with you that God, God has done a good work. But, but let me just ask you to begin today, what are you grateful for? That, that should be what you ponder. And, and, and as you think about that, as you reflect on that, like, are, you, are you grateful for things that are selfish or selfless? Like, that's, that should be the honest question you ask yourself, is when you think about your gratefulness, does your attention turn directly to you or do you think about the things around you? If you have a Bible, grab that and meet me over in Luke chapter 12 today. We're going to explore a topic that nobody likes to talk about, and that topic is greed. Greed. We don't talk about it because, well, it's the invisible sin, according to Jesus, that we only see in two-year-olds. I mean, my two-year-old or my one-and-a-half-year-old son, Keller, it's pretty obvious when friends come over that he's a greedy kid. He doesn't want anybody to play with his toys. You grab his toys, he's going to punch you, kick you, and bite you. That's obvious, but what's less obvious is when you're greedy or when I'm greedy. I, I don't know a single person on the planet that would confess that they're greedy, and yet it's the only sin you're going to see that Jesus point blank says to be on guard over. He doesn't say to be on guard over greed because it's somehow more destructive than every other sin in the Bible, because it's not, but it's more deceptive than every other sin in the Bible. Think about it. Whenever somebody has an affair, you don't have to explain to them that, that what they did was wrong. They know it's wrong, and they know that it has devastating consequences to their lives, but whenever somebody saves at the expense of being generous, it seems to be a little more deceptive. Greed is like the counterfeit $100 bill. Everything about it seems real. You can feel it, you can touch it, and it seems like it's the real deal, but it's not. That's why, if you didn't know this, federal agents, whenever they train people to, um, to spot a counterfeit, what they do is they don't ever actually show them a counterfeit. I did some research because I've seen that people talk about this all the time. I was like, is that actually true? It is true. What they do is they give you a real $100 bill, and they tell you to know everything that you can about that bill. You can feel it, you can touch it, you can smell it, so that when you know the real thing well, you'll be able to spot the fake easily. That's what I want to do today. I want to look at Luke chapter 12, the last, the last story in this forward series, and I want to show you this parable that Jesus talks about with the rich fool so that you can see that when you find your security in this counterfeit God called greed, you'll be able to spot the real thing and walk away from it because, like Jesus is going to show you, it is the silent killer of most of us. All right, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Here's what it says. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. 
because you're jumping into the middle of a story. It's quite strange what's going on here. Jesus has just gotten done pouring out his heart in one of those passages, like in one of those sermons that should just change you and wreck you. And this guy completely changes the subject. Listen to what Jesus just said. He says this, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men The Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in the very hour what you ought to say. This is what Jesus just said, and the next sentence says, and someone in the crowd said to him, teacher... Like, can, can you imagine? Think about how, how he completely disregards what Jesus is teaching and ask a question that has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on. I'm telling you, if you ever teach, that is just annoying. It's like sometimes I feel like I've got this nugget of wisdom and I sit my kids down, I put them on the bedside and I start to spit this truth out of my mouth that I think is going to revolutionize their life. And I'll be like, Emma, what'd you think? Can we have Chick-fil-A for dinner tonight? Like, really? Like, that's what you just got out of this? I mean, I, I don't know a single wife in the room that wouldn't be like, dude, I've talked to you for the last 25 minutes, husband, and you've zoned out the entire time. Like, are you even listening to me? The answer is no. All right, we quit like 26 minutes ago. And, and the reality is, is this is what's going on here. So this guy, he walks up to Jesus and he says, teacher, which is actually a super important phrase. It means rabbi. He's giving him spiritual authority to speak on the matter. And he tells him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. You see, scholars would tell you that back in this day, this was a very common issue. The older brother would take the inheritance, okay, and he he was notorious for manipulating the younger brother and taking more than his fair share. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, the Bible says that the older brother was supposed to get double the portion of the younger brother, and if the younger brother got any kind of discrepancy out of this, he was supposed to go to the rabbi or the teacher, and the teacher was supposed to handle it. But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says to him in verse 14, but he said to him, man, who has made me judge or arbiter over you? He's like, I didn't come here to settle your arbitrary disputes. Now, this isn't the point, but, but I want you to hear me say this. You can learn a lot about how to handle conflict and conflict resolution by what Jesus does right here. See, here's what he does. Jesus avoids getting caught up in earthly or arbitrary disputes or conflicts so that he can speak to the bigger things of life. See, a lot of us, a lot of us lose the ability to speak into one another's lives because we have to have an opinion on just about everything. Like we're constantly burning down unnecessary bridges because we don't know how not to speak in those moments. Maybe one of my favorite Proverbs is this, even a fool sounds smart when he doesn't open his mouth. So so Jesus, he's looking at the much larger mission ahead of him and, and he's sitting here saying, I didn't come to settle your disputes. I came to build an entirely different kind of kingdom. So watch what Jesus masterfully does though. Now this is huge. Jesus takes the surface level issue going on, which is this dispute over an inheritance, and he digs a little deeper to a heart level issue. 
Because he's trying to show you that what's really going on here is that there's a greed issue on both the older brother, who is the one who is actually taking the inheritance and being manipulative, but if you notice, he never actually addresses the older brother. He addresses the younger brother, and he says this. He says there's a destructive force that is so seductive that you don't even see it, and it's this idea of greed. So this is where Jesus goes. Check out verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What you're going to see is that what's really fascinating is what Jesus actually addresses. Now, you got to pay attention to this. See, it seems that Jesus is saying, your real problem is not your inheritance. Your real problem is what's going on in your heart. It's deeper, okay? He's, he's showing you that the things that are going on in the surface of your life aren't really what's going on in your life. The heart motive is what we tend to be blinded to. And that's why Jesus says to stand on guard against it. Like I told you, it's the only place in all the scriptures that Jesus tells you to be on guard against a certain type of sin. He's saying that you need to be ready to do battle against the deeper things. It'd be like this. Imagine if I walked off the stage and I grabbed the mic stand and I went up to Dustin like this, like I was going to hit him with it. Guess what he would do? He'd put his hands up. He would be on guard. He'd be ready. Okay, Jesus is saying when it comes to greed in your life, be on guard. Don't be caught off guard against it. Like I told you earlier, this is the only place in the Bible that Jesus says this, and he talks about covetedness. Now, that word in Greek, here's what it means. It means something like lusting after more than your fair share. That's what Jesus is saying. Be on guard against lusting after more. Now, check out why. I love this. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Y'all, that's an identity statement. Jesus is saying that you are more than your stuff. And that might sound like it's obvious, but I don't think it is. For many of us, we're defined by our stuff. We're defined by the area of town we live in or the school that our kids go to or the country club or the neighborhood that we live in. You know, I, I read one study this week done by a Harvard economist that asked people who make over $100,000 a year if they felt like they had enough money to be satisfied in this life. Two-thirds of those people said no. Think about that. Think about that. Like, I don't want to be harsh here, but we're the richest people living in the richest country in the history of the world, and we are sitting here saying we don't have enough money to cover our needs. Can you imagine having that conversation with somebody in the slums of Nairobi? Now, I, I think we got to come to grips with this. I think we have to start with the assumption. You ready for this? That we might be greedy people. Listen to this. Americans, on average, make four times as much as the average person elsewhere in the United States, and yet we spend 98% of that on ourselves. We have the highest energy consumption rate in the world, and it's not even close. They say that we spend more money on eating out than we do on giving to charity. We spend more on our pets than helping the poor. We spend more on pornography than combating oppression and injustice. And it's not because the economy is bad that we do this. On average, Americans give less as a percentage to charity today than we did during the Great Depression. And check this out. They say the average Christian in America gives 2.8% of their annual income to charities, while the average non-Christian gives 2%. Y'all, we're not that much better. 
Jesus is saying that we are looking to our stuff to fill a void that it cannot fill, and that's why it's become a counterfeit God to us. Listen to me. You are more than your stuff. You're more than your bank account. You're more than the square footage of your house. You're more than the type of car that you drive or the job title you have. So here's the big idea. Greed is deceptive because we are blind to it, and if you aren't careful, money will begin to shape your identity. That's what Jesus is saying. Tim Keller. Tim Keller says that there are four signs that money, that you have a money sickness. He says that you can see all four of these in this passage. Keller says that these will help you diagnose whether or not you have a greed issue. So here they are. Number one, bigger consumption. Bigger consumption. Keller says that the number one way you can know that you have money sickness is if you're always searching for bigger. I remember when Allison and I bought our first house in Durham, North Carolina. Y'all, it was this tiny little ranch house, and we were so proud. We were so proud. It, I mean, it, it wasn't big, but it was ours. Like, I felt like we had arrived. I loved it. And then we moved to Alpharetta, and we bought a house that was double the size, and I couldn't even imagine. You know, some of you know the house that I grew up in or the family I grew up in. It was the biggest house I've ever lived in in my entire life. And I was like, what? God, you have provided so much until I went to your house. I'm not kidding. You're laughing, but I'm not kidding. And then all of a sudden, my house looked smaller. And then I wondered why we didn't live in a cul-de-sac or why we didn't have a basement or why my kids' rooms weren't big enough or why we didn't have another bathroom, or my walk-in closet wasn't big enough. Y'all, the consumption theory is real. See, the problem wasn't my house. The problem is my eyes. It's all relative whenever I'm comparing myself to what you have. So Jesus, listen to what he says. He tells him a story, verse 16, and he told him a parable. He says this, the land of a rich man is produced plentifully. Let me, let's stop here and let me tell you a couple things that you should know. First is, the land is producing plentifully. So that, that should tell you right off the bat, he's got a lot. Like this man is rich. But notice this, Jesus never says that this guy did anything wrong. I think that's a fascinating point. It seems as if he's a farmer that has worked really hard. And it seems as if through his honest, hardworking abilities that God has bountifully blessed him. Like, God is continuing to give them. And by the way, when you look back at Jesus' day, they didn't have 401ks, and they didn't have mutual funds. They had produce, and they had land, and the abundance of their wealth was shown by their property, and how you acquired more and more showed you that you were a wealthy person. Verse 17, so he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store my grains and my goods. Have you ever thought that way? Let's be honest. Did you realize that we are the only people in the world that run out of clothes hangers? So here's what we do. When we get too much stuff, what do we do? We, we tend to kick our cars out of the little houses that we created for them so that they would stay out of the elements so that we could put our stuff inside of their house. And then when we run out of space for that stuff, we get a storage unit. Did you know? Did you know that there are over 50,000 storage units in America? And just to put that into perspective, back in 1984, there were 6,600. 
Did you know there's 33 million square footage or square feet of storage unit? Roughly 90% of the world's storage units are in America. By the way, maybe this is anecdotal, but I drive around Milton and Alpharetta, and I swear the only things we're building are liquor stores and storage units. They're on every corner. It's true. Somebody just, it's true. Why do we need more? See, it's easy to get judgy on this guy. Like, I can't believe you're building a bigger, bigger barn. We do the same thing. I can't even fit my cars inside of my garage anymore. Real quick, let me say something important here. Before I get mean on this guy, there's nothing wrong with him doing what he's doing on the surface. It's why he's doing what he's doing. Not that he's building a bigger barn. Matter of fact, you could actually say that's good stewardship. It's why. I want you to notice something. In this passage alone, notice the pronouns. My is used four times and I is used eight times. It's all about him. It's what he wants. It's bigger, better, stronger for him. The reason that he's building bigger is because he's looking to his stuff to validate him. I'm going to show you that in a second, but look at number two really quickly. Keller said the number two thing is worry. Not just bigger consumption, but it's worry. Actually, verses 22 through 34 address this. The underlying issue that Jesus is addressing here is worry. He, he's, he wants you to see that God is going to provide everything that you need, so stop worrying. Because that's what we do, isn't it? What are we going to eat? What are we, how am I going to provide for my family? Where are my kids going to go to school? Like We live in this perpetual state of worry. We worry because we live this life that consists of the possession of our stuff, and it's a lie. That's why Jesus would tell you over and over again, your life is more than your possessions. Keller says that people that worry all the time about their stuff are the people who are actually controlled by their stuff. He, he, he says the people who are always looking to what they have tend to be the people that are the most insecure about what they don't have. Again, you see it in verse 19. Look what he says. The guy says, and I'll say to my soul. He's talking to himself. You notice that? Soul, you've got ample good laid up. So why don't you relax, eat, drink, and be merry? I mean, he's trying to convince himself. If you really read into it, he's trying to convince himself that what he's doing is okay because he knows that it's not. Yo, we do the same exact thing. We justify our sins all the time. Man, it's not that bad. Like, like when you watch that on the computer, it's not like I'm having an affair. Right? I, I, it's Black Friday. <laughs> you know how much money I saved? I have this conversation in my house all the time. Well, you didn't save any money. <laughs> you spent a lot of money. <laughs> No, 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 you don't understand how the math works. No, I do. We're justifying it, right? Wait, this is what we do all the time. Soul, you got enough. Why are you worried? You know, this, this man had been given so much from God, and yet he's worried about controlling his future. The big idea here is that he needed to build something bigger to secure his own future. Here's what I don't understand. I don't understand how he looks at the, the produce or the abundance of what God has given him, and he so quickly forgets that the God who provided is going to continue to provide. Sometimes I'm like, do you not get it? Do you not get that God has given you everything that you need? Everything. Like he, if you, if you would just tell yourself stories and remind yourself of all the blessings and the faithfulness of God in your past, 
Guess what that would do to your future? It'd help you to stop worrying about it. I think God is sitting there saying, bro, why are you being so foolish? I've given you everything. Like your land and your produce and the abundance that you have, it came from me. So why are you so worried about your future? What about you? Has God not provided graciously and generously for you? I mean, he sent his own son to die for you. Like that's how much he cares for you. Why why do you believe that you need more to secure your own future? Here's what he says. Stop worrying. I, I read a book last year that is probably one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. It's called 4,000 Weeks. It's, it's the average span of life that most human beings live. And it's a time management book. But here's, here's the spoiler. His time management principle is you're trying to control a commodity that's not guaranteed to you. So stop trying to manage time. He tells this story that resonated so deeply with me for many reasons. One is because I can't get my son to fall, like to go to sleep at all right now. So he tells this story about, um, about baby wise books and all these things that all these professional like um, physicians would tell you to train your kids how to sleep. Any of you, any of you guys read all those books? Come on, raise your hand if you read one of those books. Guess what he says? It's not scientifically proven at all that any of that stuff works. He says there's cultures in the world that hold their babies all the time and their kids sleep just fine. There's cultures in the world that don't and their kids sleep just fine and vice versa. But here was his point. He was like, man, I went to the doctor and the doctor told me to sleep train my kid. And he says, I looked at the doctor and said, yes, but it's quite enjoyable to hold my kid and I'm never gonna get to do this again. He's like, why am I worried about a future that's not guaranteed whenever I have something so beautiful in the moment? Why are you trying to control outcomes that are not guaranteed to you? A commodity that's not even guaranteed to be yours. That's the point. Why aren't you trusting right now in the future, or right now in the present? See, the problem with time management is that you're leveraging an asset that's not yours. And this is exactly what this guy is doing. By the way, again, did you know that this is the only passage in all the scripture that, that speaks directly to retirement? You want a retirement principle? Read this one. This guy is leveraging his assets for his later years that should be enjoyed right now. Like, I want to speak to that for a second. Yo, what if God, what if God doesn't want you to phone it in in the fourth quarter of your life? Like, what, what if we've got this whole thing wrong? Here's what I think. I think that the most strategic years of your life where you have more time, more money, and more wisdom than you've ever had is in the fourth quarter of your life. And I think that too many of us are phoning it in on golf and vacations whenever God's sitting there saying, I've given you so much. Go do something with it. Like, what if instead of taking your time, your talents, and your resources and spending them on yourself, what if you stewarded them to build God's kingdom? Instead of going on endless vacations, what if you went on a mission trip? Instead of taking the wisdom that you've gotten, what if you invested it in a younger generation so that you could raise up the next generation? What if you started volunteering at a church or you gave generously and did more than you could ever imagine to create a legacy? See, somewhere along the lines, we have bought into the lie that we're supposed to work our entire lives to phone it in in our latter years, and I think that's because we have a temporary worldview. 
But if you have an eternal worldview and you understand that heaven is real, what you don't need is a bucket list because you're going to have the next hundred million years or so to do whatever you want and it's going to be far more enjoyable and you're not going to have any sin or suffering or decay to worry about. And God is sitting there saying, I want you to stop feeding your life with hedonism and I want you to start getting joy out of giving it away now. Like God has gifted you with so much to build his kingdom. And you've got more capacity to do that than you ever have. And instead, like this guy, we tend to want to spend it on ourselves. Now, ironically, ironically, when the Bible wants to stress foolishness, it tends to stress it in these same exact categories. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Think about Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Hey, life is meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. So why don't you just go relax, eat, drink, and be merry? Paul. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if the, if the resurrection is not true, relax, eat drink, eat, drink, and be merry. You know what's fascinating is the richest people in the foolish world and the poorest people in a foolish world do the same exact thing. They become lazy and they do nothing. God is saying, don't do either of those things. Don't be worried about a commodity that you can't own. Go and give it all back to God's kingdom. Here's number three, Security. Security. I want to be really clear here. Saving is never the issue with this rich fool. Security was. It wasn't about saving. See, saving is biblical. There's nothing wrong with that. But excessive stockpiling at the expense of being generous to others to try to control your future is not only foolish, it's unbiblical. God has called us to do something different. See, he built more, bigger, and stuff because he's looking to his stuff for security. That's why he says, he says, I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you have ample good laid up. It's a security proposition. So eat, drink, and be merry. Notice that for many years. That's the key. He's saying that his stockpile is to take care of his future. But listen to what, listen to what God says to him. Verse 20. But God said to him, fool, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Calls him a fool. Now, is it foolish to save? No. But is it foolish to assume that you have a future that isn't guaranteed? Yes. See, one of the best ways to be cured from greed, watch this, is to wake up to the brevity of life. I know that sounds odd, but this invincibility myth will tell you that you can put off for tomorrow what you should be doing today. And what God is telling him is you don't know what tomorrow holds. Like, what if tonight is your last night on earth? Would you be satisfied for what you've leveraged that God has entrusted to you? You know what's fascinating? Later on, Jesus is going to conclude this parable by telling you to look at the ravens. And to look at the lilies. And that God provides for both of them. Why is that fascinating? You ever looked at a raven? It's not a particularly pretty bird. It's like a flying rat. Black and it's nasty. That, that's, and then, you ever looked at the lilies? Now, we think they're pretty, but back then, they were just a common flower. They weren't particularly pretty. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that both of these things found their security and their beauty in God. Now listen, the two greatest pitfalls for our greed is this, security and beauty. We tend to find our security 
and our money, and we find our beauty and our money, and it's subtle. It's, I mean, security and money, that's pretty obvious. You think about it. Like, we try to control a future by, by finding our security in those things. Like, the real question is, is, do your spending habits and your saving habits communicate that you believe in God or not? When, when God called this man a rich fool, he tells him he was doing it because he was enjoying all that life had, but he wasn't investing in the next generation. That, that, listen to verse 21. He says, so the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. He was telling him, you're not being rich toward me, which is super interesting because I think a lot of us are going to get to the end of our lives and the tragedy is we're going to be super rich towards the fleeting pleasures of this world and we're going to be poor towards God. So watch this. The cure to greed is generosity. Cure to greed is generosity. When you're generous towards God, you're laying up treasures in heaven. When you take the abundance of yourself and you invest it back into God's kingdom, you're being generous towards heaven. When you give to the church and the poor and the needy, you release yourself from greed. You see, guys, not one time, not one time does this guy ever ask God, God, what do you want me to do with my stuff? Not one time does he ask God, how should I steward my resources well? Like, I wonder what would change if that's how we began our lives. God, you've provided so much to me. You've given me everything. What do you want me to do with it? The only way you're ever gonna be rich towards God is when you realize that God will provide for you. You're never, ever going to let go and give it to someone else if you believe that God hasn't given you enough. That's why Jesus goes deeper. You're always going to want what everybody else has, and you're never going to think you have enough if you don't believe that God has given you enough. So the, the first pitfall is this security thing. Like we find our security in money, but watch this. This one's even more subtle. The second pitfall is beauty. You ever seen one of those TikTok reels? Sometimes, like sometimes I'm sitting at home and I'm like, Oh, that was cool. And then I find myself like, six hours later, like, why am I still scrolling through these things? And that, that TikTok reel that comes up, and it's always this, this guy who's not, who's not particularly attractive, and he walks up and he asks people for money, or he asks a girl out on a date, and they're all like, ew, like, no, I'm not helping you. And then he pulls around the corner, and he gets in his red Ferrari, and all of a sudden, he's the most attractive person on the planet. Anybody ever seen one of those? You see, what, what ends up happening is his stuff is what actually makes him more beautiful. There's something about having nice stuff that communicates a level of beauty, right? We connect, we connect to the, the status that we have, to the type of person we are based on what we have, the country club we belong to, or the school district we live in. Now, that works for a while until you realize that people don't actually like you, they just like your stuff. By the way, the Greek word hypocrite, it literally means to take off a mask and to put on another one. And and 2,000 years ago, whenever you'd go to a play, you'd have one actor that would play multiple roles, and whenever he got done with that role, he'd take off that mask, and he'd put on the other mask. And what, what you see here is when you live a life that finds your beauty in your stuff, it just goes from one mask to the next. Y'all, that was my life for a long time, until I realized, again, I don't know if you actually like me, you just like the fake version of me. And then I became more insecure, and I had to get more stuff because I felt like people didn't really want me. They wanted my stuff. Listen, if money is your security, you will always be greedy with people. And if money is your beauty, you'll never be satisfied. Because you're finding your security and your beauty in the wrong things. But Jesus is saying there is freedom when you let God be your security and when you let God be your money or your beauty. 
I mean, it's true. It's true. When you realize that God knows you, he created you perfectly, and he's pleased with you, you stop caring about what other people think about you, and you enjoy the things that he's given you. See, when you know that God is going to provide for your needs, you'll stop worrying about controlling a future that isn't guaranteed to you anyway. Here's the last one, number four. You run to more. Listen to what Jesus said at the end of the parable. But if God so clothed the grass, which is alive today in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. And do you not see, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Here it is. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You see it? You know what the nations of the world represented? Those are the people that don't believe in God. What's he saying? Oh, you have little faith. You're acting just like people that don't believe in me. Watch this. Always needing more is the byproduct of faithlessness. So, so here it is. If you want to stop being greedy, you need to lean into your relationship with Jesus. That, that's why this is so subtle. You don't have a money problem. You tend to have a faith problem. You see, that's why Jesus doesn't address the man's inheritance. He addresses the man's heart. Because greed and covetedness aren't about money. They're about our hearts. Think about it. You only covet what somebody else has when you don't think you have enough. And you, you only save without being generous when you don't believe that God is enough. But you can't outgive God. Verse 22. And he said to the disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you'll eat, or, nor your body or what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. He's saying God's going to give you all these things. He gave the rich man his stuff. He gave the ravens their food. He gave the lilies their beauty. Don't you think that he's going to give you everything that you need? I find it fascinating that Jesus calls this guy a rich fool because he's not rich toward God. He's rich toward himself. And God is telling you, that's just foolish. That's just foolish. You can't take any of it with you anyway. He, listen, true wealth is not the accumulation of stuff. True wealth is finding your security in God. So that's why he says, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You're so much more than your stuff. Here's the key principle I want to leave you with. Greed is stealing so many of your hearts from God because you're holding on to something without trusting him. Like you'll never overcome it until you confess it. And when you're rich towards God, it will free your hearts from the most seductive secret killer out there. Earl Ellis, he's quoting on this passage. Listen to what he says. He thought he was the owner, but he found that he was being owned. He thought he was in control, but he didn't have any control. This is what Jesus is saying. So here's, here's the answer. You ready? Verse 32. It's so simple. Fear not, little flock. Interesting. Jesus ties the idea of greed to fear. I mean, that makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? Like you control what you, that you fear the most. Like for instance, I am deathly afraid of heights. So I don't go anywhere near fierce wheels. I don't go anywhere near gondolas. I don't go anywhere near skiers. Like if you want to go skiing, have fun. I'm not going. Jesus is saying the way that you overcome greed is not by controlling your circumstances, but by fear not. It's the opposite of, uh, the opposite of fear is security. Why? 
For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See it? That's a security statement. Listen, listen. Fear not. Because it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see what he's saying? He's going to give you everything. You know, when Jesus died on the cross and overcame the grave, he secured an invitation to sonship. Think about that. Jesus turned your criminal trial into an adoption ceremony. And one day you're going to stand before him because he stood before him and he became your substitute. And what you're going to hear is, well done. Well done. You are a part of the family. And because you're a part of the family, you're going to have joy in his kingdom. And that means that you will inherit the earth and everything in it. You see what he's telling the younger brother? He's telling him, stop being worried about an earthly inheritance. I've got one so much better and bigger for you than that. Like, can you imagine? One day, Jesus is going to come down to this earth and he's going to make all the sad things become untrue. He's going to give you a resurrected body and you're going to live on this earth for all of eternity. You're going to experience everything that this world has to offer without sin or suffering or corruption or pain anymore and everything in this world will be yours. You're going to be completely comfortable, fully known and fully accepted and fully loved. And here's what Jesus is saying. Why are you still worried about temporary things? Like I told you a couple weeks ago, Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You're going to gain the entire kingdom. So why are you hoarding your stuff is what Jesus is saying. Or to say it more bluntly, you fool. There's so much more out there. Leverage it to build God's kingdom. Let me speak really quickly directly to men. Men, I think that God has called you to cultivate and to build and to protect. And for somewhere along the lines, the church has just told you, they've leaned in this thing of passivity to do nothing. But that's not what God did. When he took Adam, what did he say? Here's the raw materials of the earth. Go build it. When Jesus left the disciples, what did he say? Hey, I want you to go build God's kingdom. Like you have a significant responsibility. And I think that all the, I think all the possessions you have right now are the raw materials that Jesus is looking at you. And he's saying, go build something beautiful. Go build something amazing. Go build my kingdom. Stop investing in temporary and start leveraging for the eternal. That's why Jesus ends by saying, sell your possessions. Now keep in mind, in that day, their possessions weren't their savings account. He's not telling them to go take out of your savings. No, this was their net worth. Dig into what you have. Go sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourself money bags that do not grow old with treasures in heaven that do not fail where no thief approaches and moth does not destroy because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your treasure ultimately located? That's the question. Do you have an eternal perspective or a temporary perspective? Because here's the deal. If all this life is all that there is, then go eat, drink, and be merry. But if there's more, if there's more than just right now, then go build God's kingdom. I think the world is waiting on you. Y'all, this greed thing, you gotta guard your hearts against it. It's seductive. It's silent. And Jesus is telling you that it is one of your greatest enemies that will keep you from building his kingdom.
And I'm just telling you, I don't think Satan really cares so much about what you believe as long as you do nothing with it. He's like, hey, that's good. God got you. But why don't you just hang out and take care of yourself? Just pray a prayer and go to heaven one day. You know what that does? That takes care of you while your neighbors in this world are still suffering and dying and going to a Christless eternity. My friends, that is an invitation Jesus is giving you to the best decision you can ever make is to go from this to this. You are so much more than your stuff. And when Jesus called you to be a part of his family, that adoption came with a job description. And that job description is, take what I've given you and steward it to build my kingdom. And as you do, I will fill you with abundant joy that will give you wealth beyond anything this world can provide. Don't believe the lie that you are the sum total of the accumulation of your stuff. Because listen to me, one day you're going to end up in the same place that everybody in this world is, standing before God, answering the question, what did you do with my son? You're not going to have all your stuff. So what if you leveraged your life to build his kingdom and not yours? That's the invitation. Father, thank you for your word. I know these are not always easy words, but Lord, they're good because the tough things are what save our souls. It's what gives us an inheritance that will never fail and never leave us. Father, would you give us the courage, the hope, and the faith to follow you? I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.